Hello, trauma thrivers. Welcome back for another interview, but this time for an interview that I'm really, really looking forward to. Not, of course, that I haven't been with all the others, but this is a special guest. Uh, it's Dr. Paul Hochmeyer, who is joining us from America. Um, and I'm delighted to say hello to him this morning. Morning, Dr. Paul. I know it's morning for you, late afternoon for me. And for those of you watching, I just want to introduce Dr. Paul to you. He's an author and an internationally renowned clinical and consulting psychotherapist. He's a founding principal of Drace and Muse International, and he works with individuals and families all over the world. Dr. Paul has been featured as a guest on so many media forums and TV shows. We'll probably run out of time if I mention them all here, but just to say from Dr. Oz to Good Morning America to the Today Show, just to name a few. Dr. Paul is also very well known in the field for having treated some of the world's most successful people, which he's written about in his acclaimed book, Fragile Power, why Having It All Is Never Enough, which is a totally brilliant read. And it sets out to answer why so many people who have everything or seem to have everything end up feeling like their achievements are never enough, as well as what that pattern can reveal about ourselves and the society in which we live. So I really want to talk today to Dr. Paul about the book, but also what's happening in the world in the light of COVID-19. But firstly, as I usually do with these interviews, Dr. Paul, is I like to ask about your own background and what led you into this field to start with. Well, that's a long, that's a long, I'll see whether I can abbreviate that one. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a spring chicken and it's taken me um, several careers actually to get where, where I am. Uh, you know, I started my career in a very traditional way. I was an economics major in college, went into banking, decided that I wanted more education and became a lawyer. And I practiced as a corporate lawyer for a wow. number of years. Okay. I really came to realization pretty quickly that wasn't how I wanted to spend the rest of my life fighting with, with people. And so I went into the realm of um, environmental justice and I worked for, um, actually I lived in Amsterdam and worked for Greenpeace oh, International. Wow. And, and, and there, and I was actually living in Amsterdam when September 11th happened. And as a white privileged male who had grown up in America, the security of my world had been guaranteed until it wasn't on that day. And it was a very traumatic experience for me. The safety and security of my world was very threatened. And so I returned back to America and I kind of had an existential crisis. I really decided to look for significant meaning in my life. And I decided to focus on behavioral health, mental health. And I okay. went back went back to school and I got a master's degree in clinical psychology with a focus on family systems. And it and I was observing in the world and as part of that process, the school was was very uh, progressive and really focused on the importance of cultural competency in working with minority populations. And I observed that the minority populations that were being focused on were people who lived in the world in positions of powerlessness. Right. And I thought, well, that's interesting because here we are in a world where we have minority of people who live in the world of extraordinary power. 
Yes. And we haven't developed any clinical formulations to help manage those people. And there's a host of problems that are resulting from, from the separation and from the division. Income inequality, if we think about it, is an extraordinary problem that only seems to be, that, that not, doesn't seem, but is getting worse. And so I decided to go back to school. You'll see there's a pattern here. I'll have like an existential crisis and I'll decide to go back to school and get another degree. <laughs> I'm kind of out of degrees, but I, I, I don't think I'm out of existential crises. As, as, I don't know whether we ever are, are we? God willing, I yeah, think, yeah, right? Yeah. It's, it's, okay. kind of, it's a gift to, to yeah. be able to think about these things. And so, so I went back to university and I did my PhD and I studied uh, power constructs. What does okay. it mean to be a person of great wealth? What does it mean to be a celebrity? And I did that work and I looked at it at three levels of our existence, the intrapersonal, the interpersonal, and the social cultural. And then that set forth the trajectory of my work and the book Fragile Power, which is the culmination of that in terms of understanding what is it like to be in that experience. And then I've developed a clinical formulation to effectively treat those human beings so that they can begin to connect more with human their humanity first and the humanity that they live in and develop the capacity to empathize with people other than themselves and develop compassion. And now my existential goal in life is to really help to ameliorate the division that we have in our world, particularly between the have and the have nots, because the top down, top up approach isn't working. Yes. My work focuses, and our work focuses on enabling people to connect with their humanity first and then humanity so that they can move themselves and the world in a reparative direction. And, and we need, we, there's a lot of repair that we need to be focusing on right now. Yeah, well, there's a lot of what you say and, and what we're witnessing of collective trauma and societal trauma that's taking place. I mean, this interview is taking place in the time of COVID-19, which I'm sure we're going to talk about and what that means, but also in the whole context of Black Lives Matter and everything that's happening, certainly on stateside for you at the moment, it feels like there is a lot of fragile power happening. I mean, the title of the book couldn't be better at the moment, you know, in some ways. Um, and then underlying that, I guess, you've been talking about trauma quite a lot and that collective and national trauma. And I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. Well, my trauma work focuses on, you know, attachment. So there's a breach in attachment. And so there's a disconnection from security in the world. And I think of where we look at where we are collectively as, as, as a human race, um, regardless of what country we, we live in. We're living in extraordinary disconnection. Um, we're all suffering from, I think, attachment disorders yeah. because the foundations of our lives that we look to for security have been rattled. And that's been particularly true in America. Um, because in America, we, um, well, with the election of Donald Trump, that was a huge disruption. Nobody really saw that. Uh, well, some people clearly did, but, but Donald Trump is a disruptor. Yes. And so that's every day with him, there's something new and different and changing. And for, 
for, for human beings who, who need a secure environment, it's very disruptive and very traumatic. And then we have come to the four realities that we thought had been taken care of. Uh, racial injustice in terms of America. Yes. Um, well, gun violence, um, economic insecurity. I mean, you know, the list goes on, doesn't it? Yeah, and, totally. And, and, and my work is really grounded in feminist theory and feminist thought and the collaborative approach. But if you look at feminist theory, it was that um, the political is personal, right? And, yeah. and so, and, and the personal is political. And so personal ills could be solved and healed by the political process. Yeah. Well, we're living in quite a different reality now, aren't we? Yeah. Well, the political process. Yes itself is causing an enormous amount of social and emotional unrest. And I think, you know, you had that over in Brexit, right? Yeah, I mean, totally, totally. And, and almost in the way that we handled COVID-19 and the crisis and the way that, you know, uh, that our, our instability, if you like, is continuing um, in the world, you know, in the face of how the UK is viewed even as a country. So that political side, you're right, and that uh, national trauma becomes a kind of collective trauma. And for those of us that have experienced detachment disruptions, you know, who you rightly, rightly say, we kind of almost look to our leaders, don't we, or our hierarchical structures for some sort of grounding or stability or safety. And it's, it's not there, or it's the likes of Donald, who you wouldn't want to rely on for, you know, let's face it, lending you a fiver, you know. Well, it's a narrative of betrayal, isn't it? And so we, you know, like if we look, so we're looking on a macro level, what trauma people will experience dramatically individually. And we're awakening to the fact that we have given our power away. I want to say recklessly, but, it, but actually we've been seduced. Yes. In giving our power away to people who don't deserve it and who can't handle it and yeah. use it to betray us. Yeah. And so for human beings who have a very deep um, trauma schema set up in their life where they've been betrayed by a primary caregiver, now on this macro level, we're experiencing yeah. this extraordinary trauma. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because you talked about in the book the, the kind of tribal and the hierarchical and the patriarchal society and, and how we look, if you like, to systems of power or people of power, which is what I'm sure you know much more about this than me, but, but what wealth and fame and, and success uh, means that really sometimes I think I wonder if it's only in this generation or time now that that we would elect a president as such or we would look to those systems for kind of safety or security that in essence I think you're saying in the book that some of those systems have fragility underneath that what we think is safe and secure i.e the money or the the power or the wealth or the beauty or the fame they're they're all um they're all kind of instable if you like structures aren't they as such well that's just it isn't it and i think you know i blame a lot of this the what to technology and i think yeah. that that our humanness has not been able to keep pace with 
technology. And so if you look at historically other industrial revolutions, they recurred over an extended period of time. And so our central nervous systems have been able to connect to, 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 to restructure because human beings are extraordinarily adaptive yeah. Um, yeah. and we adapt and, and we will, we are adapting quite, quite effectively to COVID. And so, um, so, so, yeah, so I think that what happened was we've been seduced into buying a veneer the veneer of success, the veneer of celebrity. Yeah. And there hasn't been really any work given towards that. Where historically a celebrity, let's say for instance, Judy Garland, right? It's an extraordinary talent, right? Yes, and, and, and so, and so um, that cultivation of talent. And so we don't, now we have internet celebrities and we have reality TV stars. And then yeah. we've been, our central nervous system hasn't been able to sort out, if you will, the difference between what's authentic and credible and reliable and that which is a veneer and a fad and unstable and, and, and not worthy of, of our power. Yeah. And I suppose that's about underneath those veneers or underneath those structures, how secure we feel within ourselves or that nervous system feels to connect to which is i guess our job as therapists isn't it to try and create that stable base and that connectedness with somebody we have to do our own uh, trauma work and try and become more solid structures i don't know quite whether solid is the right word to use but no, I think it's a very good word. I think solid is the word. It's building an internal scaffolding, if you will, that's solid and that's reliable in ourselves. And that, you know, trauma people who we, 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 our instincts, we don't necessarily trust our instincts, particularly when a primary caregiver who's supposed to protect and nurture us betrayed us. Yeah. And so we get, it's, there's this, there's this disconnection. And so, um, you know, the more I work with trauma, the more I realize that talk therapy will only get you so far. Yes. That you really need to go deeper into the central nervous system yeah. and you need to go deep into the unconscious. And so, you know, I'm working with a patient now who, who has done, who just contacted me and has been doing trauma work for a lot of decades, if you will. And, you know, for the first time, I recommended him do acupuncture. Yeah. And yeah. Deep yes. tissue massage. Yes. And, and and so getting deeper into the into the body. Into the body. I do feel that it's very much an embodiment that we need to address holistically. Yeah. And talk totally therapy can only get you so far. It's the the relational aspect is important. So my work and your work is very critically tied to the integrity of the relationship yes. and the therapeutic alliance and having that safe contained structured space where you mirror the patient, you see them for authentically who they are, and then you appropriately challenge them to move in a reparative direction. That's a bit of an art, isn't it? Yeah, it's a complete art. It's a dance really, isn't it? It's a dance. Yeah, because you're, you're treating people or trying to get people to trust who haven't found it easy to trust others. And then added to, to that for you and the niche that you work with, I would think that the, the, the wealthy and the famous, well, I, well, I know because in reading your book, it suddenly came into my consciousness as I was reading it that my first three bosses 
one was a billionaire and the other two were millionaires. And so I, I kind of saw that extremeness on that side of my 20s. And then I ended up working in radio for, for, decades, for eight years and putting bands and, and pop stars on the stage. So I had a real first kind of 30 odd years of my life seeing all that side of it and the, the other side of it. So it, it brought back quite a lot of uh, memories reading your book about being on the other side and seeing that it's not all it's cracked up to be at all. Well, and there's an extraordinary amount of vulnerability associated yeah. with it, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, when we think about the creative process, any act of creation involves criticism. Yes, yes, people even are going writing to like a book. We're certainly writing a book even, or a video. Is people yeah. are going to like it or dislike? You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's, there's. We're gonna get can, a thumbs up. Yeah, we're gonna get a thumb up or a thumbs down. Uh -oh. uh -oh. Hopefully, we have enough of the internal scaffolding. That can, Hopefully, please and, and We have enough of a relationship that I can call you. I can say, Lou, did you see this? Oh. I could just bring you up. Um, but but any act of creation, doesn't it? It has it has it's inherent in it is yeah. is criticism and so and and the vulnerability and and what what's happened historically and that's why I'm I, I really appreciate you embracing the book in, in a way that you have because historically when you have people of power celebrities in particular who go into treatment they're objectified and manipulated. Yeah, totally. <laughs> because clinicians can't hold the enormity of the power that they bring yeah, them. Yeah. And, and the field of behavioral health, particularly addiction treatment over the last 20 years, there's been an explosion of treatment centers that market to people of wealth. Yeah. But up until my book, there, hadn't, there hasn't been any clinical roadmap. For, for effectively treating this particular population. And look, this isn't an analysis of better than, less than, more deserving, less deserving. Yeah. If you're a human being who comes onto this planet, you deserve clinically competent, culturally relative care. Yes, right? totally. So, 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 so period, that's, that's, I don't think that you can assign um, an economic threshold on who deserves cultural care. And when you look at the nature of treatment, if you look at the, my research shows that there are three distinct cultural markers of this particular population. Yeah, that would be really interesting to hear for, for the audience, if you don't mind sharing those markers with us. No, of course. I, so the first is isolation. Right. So people of wealth and celebrities are profoundly isolated in the yeah. world. The second one is suspiciousness of outsiders, so that they're constantly on hyper alert. Do you like me for who I am or for my surname or for my bank account yeah, or what I can do for you? And the third construct, which is very unique to this population, is a notion of what's called hyperagency, which is to manipulate your world to avoid any discomfort. Okay. Yes. So flying private is the best example. I'm not going to go to Heathrow and deal with those cues and yeah. all of those people. I'll just, but, but that it goes much deeper than that. Now, when you think about what we ask a patient to do in therapy, well, it goes against every single one of those cultural markers, doesn't it? Yes. yes. We're asking you to come out of your isolation, connect with another human being, who you are going to be suspicious of their motives and to tolerate discomfort 
while they poke around your trauma background or your, you know, the things that you have been hiding and trying to stuff down yeah. for your whole life. So, so, so we wonder why, we wonder why Marilyn Monroe died. We wonder why Whitney Houston died. Yeah. You know, we wonder, like, the list goes on and on and on, isn't it? Because the mental health profession has not adequately addressed these distinct cultural markers and developed clinical formulations yeah. to treat them, which is what I've done in my book. Which is brilliant because, you know, pain has got no economic background, has it? So, you know, I think that sometimes people think that the wealthy or the famous or the, or the rich are, um, are, are kind of problemless, if you like, because they don't suffer with the same inadequacies or issues that every, the rest of us, you know, mere mortals do, but they've got exactly the same things and problems going on and if not compounded by all of that wealth or status or expectation surely it's different it isn't better than or less than you know yeah, and that was one of the revelations for me and one of the things that i wrote about in my book was that you know i grew up as a middle class white male in america and so the dominant cultural message that i was taught and that i internalized and believed was that money was the key to the all if you had yeah, money then totally. you can solve all the problems yeah. in your world totally and and i grew up in thatcher yes <laughs> it's just like oh my god you know you got to make a mint to, to mean anything exactly yeah right and the more the more material possessions you have the more you can isolate yourself and that is true Right, the more protection. Look, let's not pretend that money doesn't buy this, the healthiest food, the safest cars, enables yeah. us to live in the best neighborhoods. Yeah. Right, I mean, we don't need to, 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 but basically, what we need to do is develop our, the, what I think is a responsible thing for our profession to do is if we know we're dealing with a minority population, which we are, yeah. top 10%, top 1%, then we have an obligation as clinicians to develop clinical formulations that meet them in their clinical markers, just as we would as a woman, just as we would as a person of color, just as we would as a gay and lesbian transgender person, right? Yeah. Uh, just as we would as, as a Muslim, just as we would as a Jew. Look, every person comes with a distinct cultural identity. Yeah. And as clinicians, we need to honor and recognize those. Is there anything that you would say to clinicians watching this? Because I know that part of Trauma Thrivers, obviously we've got quite a high clinical um, percentage about what they can do to be culturally, culturally competent. God, that's a bit of a tongue twister. But, you know, right. anybody that's watching this, that, that tips that you could give them when they are working with uh, that client population. Yeah, I think, um, so it, it's, read the book, actually, chapter yeah, seven. Yeah, that would be a really good so idea. Let's see if I could do that. Wow. Um, <clears throat> or you can, you know, develop, sort of get over this construct of less than, better than thing. Yeah. It's, about it's about sort of delivering culturally competent services. Um, first of all, pay attention to your own, what we call counter-transference reaction to it. Yeah. If you're having a negative reaction to it, then that's something you need to pay attention to. Yeah. If you're thinking this is just bullocks, if this is just not, this is, what are you talking about? That's, that's very significant. When I was doing my dissertation, I was looking for my dissertation committee and I interviewed a very esteemed existential psychotherapist, world-renowned, and I told him about my work and he said, 
well, Paul, why would you, why would you waste your time studying rich people? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. well, for the very reaction that you just had, wow. he, he just, he was not, his ego was such that he just couldn't, he couldn't get it. But, um, but it got done, the research got done. And, and, and recognize that there is a, this is a distinct cultural population and that you're dealing with isolation and suspiciousness of outsiders. And then when that patient is challenging you and testing you, it's because they are, they are looking to see, are you trustworthy? Yes. And you need to be trustworthy. Yeah. You can't tell them that you're, just because I wrote a book and just because I developed my research around this, patients who work with me and who I work with a long time have to feel that yeah. I can hold, that I am worthy of holding the enormity of their pain yeah. because they can't. Yeah. And, and so a supervision is critically important, like establishing a connection of other, you know, people yes. in our community. Yeah. And we have a nice, we have, we're starting to develop a nice international community That's around really the world, around these issues, which is, which is yeah. really important. Yeah, it is. It's great to work in a group. And also, you know, we know with trauma and trust that unless somebody trusts you, they can't enter their window of tolerance and be in ventral vagal and feel relaxed enough to be able to even connect to you authentically, which is, you know, our right hemisphere engages to their right hemisphere. And we're kind of the affect regulator, aren't we? Or the modulator. And if you've got no trust, you've got no right hemisphere engagement. So we're kind of, yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you on that. And, and, I, that I, happens, and that happens on a sort of limbic system level. That's yeah. not... It's Even not a cognitive thing. It's yeah. especially, you know, we're constantly in hypervigilance. Can yeah. I trust you? Can you hold the enormity of my pain? Will you betray me? Yeah. And, and the added thing, I suppose, is that, you know, confidentiality and holding that boundary and never revealing anything for people like that. That's another added, I would think, concern for them as well, you know, Am I, are the contents of this entirely safe? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of you and trauma and trauma work and moving forwards, what's your thoughts on how we're going to approach this kind of collective or what I call, well, it is collective trauma, it's world trauma and come out the other side of covid and everything else that we're going through what would you like to see happen well what i would like to see happening is what i think is happening and that is that we are expanding by contraction yeah so i think that there's 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 a segment of humanity that's going to be elevated by this and so there's going to be an expansiveness of of of, of consciousness and connection and an understanding of the importance of life. That happened through contraction because yeah. we were all kind of sent to our rooms by mother nature, weren't we? Mom, yeah, mother and, nature. yeah. And, and, and I think you said somewhere in one of your articles that I was reading that, you know, the mental health kind of uh, epidemic, if you like, escalated in America, but then more people have maybe reached out for help over the last few months too so it's kind of awakened if you like our society or our need to maybe because 
as you say, we can't really change what's happening out there per se, but maybe what we can do, each of us individually, is start to change what's happening in here. Well, we can talk, it's what we've talked about before. You said strength and we defined it as, as scaffolding, isn't it? Yeah, and so, yeah. And so we have been forced to spend an extraordinary amount of time with self. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> some of it good, some of it not so good. <laughs> you know, I have days that are kind of, that are, you know, that are not so great. Yesterday was one of them where I just had a day where I was just feeling overwhelmed by the endlessness of this. And, and so, and, and so by spending more time with self, we've been able to edit out things that are important. And it's interesting, right? What we're realizing the things that we don't need. Yeah. It was interesting. I was talking to a patient of mine, and and, and uh, she lives in in New York City, and she was walking down Fifth Avenue, and she went down by Gucci, and she said, "You know, Gucci used to mean like 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 Gucci really has no relevance in the world that I yes. live in." Anymore. And yes. she used to think that it was something, and so so I think that we are we are being able to make our footprints smaller. Yeah. And then, and then, but but have more meaning and purpose in, in in what our footprints are. And I think that for those people who are conscious, and I suspect everyone who's watching this video is conscious, that that this is a real opportunity. Yeah. To create really deep meaning in your life, right? Yeah. Um, there's a third of the population who probably who will, who are just totally going through this totally unconsciousness will not change anything about their lives. There's another third that will make some adjustment, but there's another third, and I suspect it's the audience that we have here, yeah. who really are looking to use this in a reparative way to, to expand their humanness yeah. in the world, as opposed to their material footprint in the world. I, I certainly am. Yeah, me too. And you, you talk a lot about, you know, having a vision or a mission or a plan or a, 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 I can't remember the words in the book that you use about the importance of that. And also you do an exercise around values, which I think is interesting. And I wonder whether you'd mind sharing that because that feels to me like it's a kind of inner scaffold too. It's very much in our scaffolding. So we have to reclaim our individual human values. Yeah. My human values, the three stool, the, the three stool, the three legs of the stool on which I sit are freedom, yeah. connect, connectivity, freedom from mental health disorders, freedom from trauma response, yeah. freedom from disorders, freedom from pathological relationships, right? Be nice. Connect connectedness yeah. feeling a sense of connectedness to the world uh for me i happen to have the privilege now of living in nature and i'm about three thousand meters above sea level and mountain town in colorado and oh, so for me it's had reconnecting i was in new york city for years and now i'm reconnecting i go swimming in an alpine lake every afternoon because it's just connecting with yeah, yeah. with Mother Nature, and I need to feel more grounded. I need to feel, I need to get dirty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My my version of doing that is walking the dog every morning in the pouring rain in London or out or Surrey, should I say today? But yeah, and picking, and picking up the dog do, which is very huge. Yes. This is an act of humility, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. 
So people have to pick their own values, like find their own values. Right. And find three. Find find three values. And then what do they do once they've found those values? What did you do with yours? Be intentional about honoring them in some way every day. And just being, being, uh, we have to be intentional with our lives, don't we? Because particularly people who suffer from a trauma background because they're so reactive. Their central nervous system is set up to react. And so we need to mediate that with intentionality. And and one of the other gifts, I think, of the the constriction of of our lives and in our COVID world is recognizing that this doesn't go on forever, does it? Nothing goes on forever, does it? That the fragility of life is very much in our face and in our fore. And that is important because it gives meaning to life. And And, and, and really, this isn't, this isn't to be taken for granted, is it? And, and no, but I, I think nothing can be taken for granted, really. Um, and I think that's what it's waking us up to. And I think that has its positives as well, in that maybe it brings in at some point some more gratitude for each day in the life that we have got and that we're blessed with. Amen. I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that I recommend all my patients do, regardless of, you know, your place on the economic spectrum is to do a gratitude list. I think, you know, basic tools like coming up every morning for three, three things for which you're, the first thing you do is focus your consciousness on gratitude. Yeah. That will set you for the rest of the day. And then as live as best you can in the 24 hours, which yeah. is, which is very, 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 you know, very difficult. Um, so yeah, but, but I do think connecting, we, if we don't claim our values, they will be handed to us by people who don't, aren't deserving of our, of, our, of our trust and potentially will betray us. Yeah, and it's finding those relationships too, isn't it? To have people that are, you know, uh, we, we are willing to trust because I think we create trauma in relationships, but we also heal in relationships too. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it's finding those relationships that, that we are, you know, there's been a lot of really great work that's come out around vulnerability and yeah. construct. And I think it's entered the realm of, of pop culture, perhaps, you know, we tend to get a little too far with these things, don't we? Yeah. And so for me, you know, I practice strategic vulnerability, particularly if I have a patient that has a trauma background. Yeah. So know the people with, with whom you're being, you're sharing your vulnerability and be strategic in how you're doing yeah. it. Because this carte blanche, you know, open book, vulnerable with everybody and, 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 the, and the leading clinicians in the realm of vulnerability don't, don't don't espouse this but but I think sometimes that when this gets picked up by the popular media the message becomes one of oh like you know carte blanche vulnerability is a good thing and that's very that's very dangerous yeah proposition yeah I I'd like to honor your vulnerability at the beginning of each chapter uh, that was rough. During your that was rough story. Story. <laughs> yeah, that, that feels that feels like it, it it must have been a bit uncomfortable. But actually those were the parts of the book that really touched me because I felt like I could connect to you more in those moments and know you, especially as the young boy who wasn't so smart or 
the things that Probably we do, right? Yeah, yeah, so young about ourselves, which I don't know, for me, maybe make us or you or we the clinicians that we are, because without some understanding of woundedness, it's very difficult to ever, and I never profess to ever sit in the gilded cage. I like your analogy that we are with somebody and there is no hierarchical structure in the job and the work that we do. Yeah. Right. No matter how much people want to project on us. Yeah. The positions of authority, right? Particularly yeah. me as a white male, you know, there's an enormous amount of power that gets thrown to me and people want me to solve their problems. And I have a PhD and a law degree. And so yeah. there's a lot of expectations. And so yeah. I have to work very diligently to work collaboratively yeah. with the patient. And I think that there is, you know, the, the notion of the wounded healer is very, very particular. The trick becomes how do you take the wound and how do you, uh, um, I think it has to happen in a frame. I think that, you know, one of the things that I find very important is that even though the work that we do clinically is an art, it needs to be grounded in very solid science. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I've done with my book, you know, this isn't just my opinion. I've, I've, I've yes. you know, I based my work on established theoretical constructs and empirical science, and I move it into a, you know, advance it in a new direction, which is what, you know, innovation is. And, and we, you know, we're, we have to constantly be innovating. We have to constantly be growing. We have to constantly be expanding uh, what it means to treat, what it's like to treat trauma. Like yeah. How we treat trauma today is not the same as we treated it 20 years ago, is it? Yeah, no. I like to frame it as a journey of continuous becoming. That's my phrase. You know, Beautiful. even for us therapists, you know, and um, and it's an endless journey of still treating our, our own trauma. Or certainly for me, I wouldn't profess yet to any of my patients or clients to be 100% trauma free. You know, and, right. and, you know, even around the dog. <laughs> you know, who, who, who acts out all of my uh, trauma or anxiety if I let him. So yeah, we have to be aware of that. So the future for you, Dr. Paul, now, what would you like to do personally? Now you've got this book done. What do you, do you have an idea of what's next for you? Where you would like to go? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think that this is it. I mean, I think that again, you know, I was banging around the world pretty well, you know, like, and I think for me, being able to force, you know, to, to sit in one place, 3,000 yeah. meters above sea level, where, where the air is, there isn't a lot of oxygen up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, been up there, I guess. But, you know, I think people are saying, like, what's your next book? And I, and I you know, like, this book has, has been, is a very, was a very personal journey for me. And yeah. I'm very grateful to Hazelton for giving me the opportunity to say what I wanted to say in a way that I wanted to say it because a lot of other mainstream publishers wanted to put this tick off boxes for this book. Yeah. And Hazelton was like, you know, this can be, I said, you know, let's say melange of things, isn't it? It's a personal journey. It's, it's a clinical book. It's a trade book. Yeah. It has personal stories. And so Hazelton really gave me the opportunity to do that. And I look at this, as my child, I look at it, the fragile power as my daughter. I call her Franny, yeah. and um, oh, lovely. And I'm quite protective of it as to how she gets introduced 
into the world. And I, and I feel like she's still in her nappies, you know? Okay. And, so, and yeah. so I feel like I, I, I kind of want to get her out in the world in, in a way that, that sort of sets her up. I don't feel like she's, she's found her space yet. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't feel like she's found her, her mates and I don't feel like, so, so, so I, I kind of want to spend the next year, two years, three years, kind of finding, helping her get settled into the world yeah, I before that. I think about writing another book. But mind you, you know, I'm always, I am a writer and that's my passion. And so I do think perhaps about writing a book about collective trauma and, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, where in our post COVID world, it will be more of like a self-help genre. Okay. Because that's one right. of the issues with fragile power is that it again it it's a melange. It it it, it captures a number of, of different different it doesn't tick off, it doesn't fit into one box, which is brilliant because I don't fit into one box. No, you definitely don't. And I love the way that it doesn't fit into one box because anybody could read it from from you know a celebrity to a clinician to a, i mean the audience is kind of vast and everybody would get something from it even you know from a from a lay person or non-professional or understanding so that's what i liked about it oh good yeah and the other side is you know my practices has picked up a bit and i had i had been really doing a lot of consulting work and writing and and, 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 you know, the universe gives us what we need. And it so does. here I am being able to sit with human beings in this new world order and this new reality. And that is really rich and meaningful. So um, I've always had a small practice. I still have a relatively small practice. And I, because the nature of the work is so intense. Yes. Um, um, so, so, so that's, probably what I think of doing and working internationally because I feel as though from a micro level we're, we're becoming so divided Brexit America you know we're closing our borders and all yeah. of that I want to be able to work internationally with people on, the, on a very intimate level to connect the, our humanness while we're living in this ethos of division and so I think that there will be a return. Look, I, I don't, my work doesn't scale. Yes. You know, I, I am a knitter. I yes. basically work with one human being at, at a time, time yeah. to bring reparative change. And so I feel called to do that work more deeply. But also, I, I suppose, it, you know, in your defense, whereas, you know, trauma thrivers, I'm trying to create and, and want to create something that hits more mainstream and more masses and maybe the opposite end of the spectrum to you you know people that are struggling financially or don't have the wealth to be able to afford therapy or treatment i kind of feel right. called to that that audience now um you know but but what if change you do affect in a world where we are starting to become divided or not connected and separate and see our brothers and sisters as more separate in 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 essence down to our leadership and power structures and stuff the people that you do work with you can affect enormous change in them because they are the ones if you like that already have the voices well that's just exactly it right and the resources too and i yeah. think that if we look historically 
demanding that people act a certain way hasn't worked. What we've tried has not worked. Right. It's only gotten worse. It's only gotten markedly worse yeah. around the world. And so I think let's try something different. Yeah. Let's try to teach people who hold extraordinary power the value of empathy and compassion for other human beings. Yeah. And I think again, it's trying to connect. Our work is very similar. You know that that we're creating community of connection yes. based upon human vulnerability and human strength. Yes. Yeah. Because it's the strength of the humanness that we are that calls out. It's people don't people don't connect to to your website through a weakness. They do it through a strength. Yeah. It's that call to live. It's that call to survive. It's that human essence to improve and to repair that's hardwired into us. And so that's, that's the power of your work. Yeah. And, and look, I work with people all over the economic spectrum. You, you know, so, yeah, you do, so of course, and you have done in your past, you know, in, in LA and New York, you know, you've right. worked, you know, at both sides of the spectrum, I know. Right. And, you know, I think that calls to the, the trauma therapist or the therapist in all of us that, you know, uh, our job, and certainly personally, my job is to try and help people learn how to thrive. And thriving for me is such a profound word, which is why it's called trauma thrivers, because thriving for me was, is never about our material wealth or our status or our position. For me, thriving is about our ability to have a voice and feel valuable and feel worthy and do all that stuff that us as traumatized individuals find hard to do. Right. You know? Because we were never properly seen or heard for yes. who we are. Yes. And so it's been that struggle our whole lives to find a voice, which is, you know, it was really important for me to put fragile power out into the world, to feel like... Yes. I had the authority and the experience to put it, to put my child out into into the world, um, yeah. and so it's very it's critically important for trauma thrivers yeah. to claim their voice and to claim connection and to to to, to honor their identity in, an, in in a way that honors and enables them to provide value into the world. And yeah. what you're doing is extraordinarily valuable, and everybody who clicks on your website or it joins provides an extraordinary act of service so for that i'm grateful well i'm profoundly grateful for you today too and your time and i feel very touched that you've given me your uh, time to come here and talk to me and our group and i thank you dr paul and any help that i can give you with what you're doing i think it's phenomenal too so Great mutual It's a two-way street. This needs to be a reciprocal relationship. Okay, you so, got that. Thank no you. Question. Lovely to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take Thank care. you. Bye.